chapter 16, verse 1. When David had gone a short way beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, was there to meet him. He had a couple of donkeys that were saddled, and on them were 200 loaves of bread, 100 raisin cakes, and 100 baskets of summer fruit, and a container of wine. The king asked Ziba, Why did you bring these things? And Ziba replied, The donkeys are for the king's family to ride on, the loaves of bread and the summer fruit are for the attendants to eat, and the wine is for those who are exhausted in the desert. And the king asked, Where is your master's grandson? Ziba replied to the king, He remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give back to my grandfather's kingdom. The king said to Ziba, Everything that was Mephibosheth now belongs to you. Ziba replied, I bow before you, may I find favor in your sight, my lord the king. Now remember, Ziba is the one who inherited all the lands of Saul after he died. Because the only descendant of Saul that he saw, the only descendant Saul still had was Mephibosheth, his grandson, who was a cripple. But what kind of a fight would a cripple put up for the land? So he took it and seized it illegally. But when David sought out Mephibosheth to bless him and his fulfillment of the promise to Jonathan to not kill any of the sons of Saul or Jonathan, he brought Mephibosheth and said to Ziba, "These lands belong to, to Mephibosheth. They're now Mephibosheth." And you will be a servant to Mephibosheth just like you were a servant to Saul because he's the descendant of Saul. They belong to him. And then David put him at his table and made a covenant with him and protected him. Now, you know Ziba's got some bitterness because the minute that story ended, it said, oh, by the way, Ziba had become very powerful and very wealthy off of these lands and had many, 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 many sons. Now losing all that land means he has no inheritance for his sons. Now, if he never had that land to begin with, he would have never grown to be that big. This is like a Bill Gates or whatever. And then he loses everything. And he's going to want to get it all back. So he sees the opportunity. I'll come out and tell him that Mephibosheth has betrayed him and said, Long live the house of Benjamin. This is my opportunity to come back into power again. Now, that's not true at all. That's not true at all. And that's what we're going to find out later. So he's lying to David. And David falls into that. He doesn't go to God. He doesn't seek an advisor. And he says, okay, everything's yours again. Everything's yours again. So he was deceived there. Chapter 16, verse 5. The king David reached Barum. And there a man of Saul, extended, extended family named Shimei, son of Gerah, came out yelling curses as he approached and he threw stones at David and all King David's servants as well as all the people and all the soldiers were on his right and left. As he yelled curses, Shimei said, Leave, leave, you man of bloodshed, you wicked man. Yahweh has punished you for all the spilled blood of the house of Saul and whose palace you rule. And now Yahweh has given the kingdom into the hand of your sons Absalom. Disaster has overtaken you for you are a man of bloodshed. So Shimei is from the house of Benjamin. And he's like, I voted for Saul. I wanted Saul to be king. You've wrongfully taken this from him. Now, remember, Shimei is ignoring all the theological points that God made David king. He's throwing rocks at him. He's accusing him of being a murderer. We don't know exactly why he'd be accusing him of murder, but he's like, you deserve this. Now, knows what's happening now. Yes, faith-wise, David's faith has returned to him as he's gone through the valley and gone back up to the hill. But once he gets to the top of that hill, now he's moving eastward out of the land. 
and now he's moving eastward of the land, what's happening? Bad things are happening to him. People are starting to oppose him, and he's not thinking rightly. And so he's moving eastward, and he's moving further and further away from God. Now, we know that's not literally true that he's moving further away from God in the geographical sense, but he is in a moving outside the lane, outside the blessings and the promises and the covenant of God. He should have probably stayed in the palace and trusted God to take care of him. But now he's running away from the land because that's what David does. The minute he ran away from Saul, he went to Philistine territory. When that didn't work, he went to Moabite territory. And when that didn't work, he finally came back to the land and he ran away. But then after a few years, he went back to Philistine territory. So what does David do when he's in trouble? Yeah, he trusts God sometimes, but he also runs out of the land. And he's doing it all over again. Nothing has changed. This should remind you of like Abraham constantly passing his wife off as a sister all the time. Yeah, he was a great man of faith, but at the same time, he was a ding-dong. So he's cursing at Verse 9, Then Abishai, remember the brother of Joab, Son of Zariah said, King, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. Once again, that's Joab and Abishai's response to everything. Remember, Abishai is the guy, every single time he came up to Saul, he said, let me kill him. You should kill him. Let's kill him. Joab, like, let's kill Abner. Let's kill him. This is like, that's your answer to everything. Let's kill, 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 kill. At this point, David's had it up to here with them. So he says, what do we have in common, you sons of Zariah? If he curses because Yahweh has said to, said to him, curse David, who can say to him, why have you done this? Then David said to Abishai and to all the servants, my own son, may, my very own flesh and blood is trying to take my life. So also now this Benjamite, leave him alone so that he can curse for Yahweh has spoken to him. Perhaps Yahweh will notice my affliction and this day grant me good in place of his curse. So David's response is this. First, I'm not going to kill a guy for cursing me. You don't kill a guy for throwing insults at you. That's not biblical. We have nothing in common. You always want to kill, and I don't want to do that. And the times that he probably might be thinking, the times that I did act like you, but this is why I'm in this situation. Then he says, if God wants him to curse me, then he will let him. If he doesn't, he'll stop him. And so think of two. Yes, David is having trouble trusting God and his faith is growing, but at the same time, this would be a very difficult theological conundrum to work out. Because at the same time, you're probably thinking, yes, in some sense I have the Davidic covenant promising that God will be with me, but I also have the promise of God that all this is going to happen to me because of my sins. So where is it that God is with me, but at the same time, this all should be happening to me because of my sins? That would be a very difficult thing to figure out in your life. God told you your life is going to fall apart because of your sins, but I'm always with you. Like, okay, how, how do you bring those two things together and a practical? It's easy to say that theologically. It's hard when you're actually facing this in the moment. You're like, this is of God, but at the same time God is with me. And basically David in the end just says, if God wants me to be blessed, then he will trump these curses. And he throws himself in the hands of God and says, let God deal with this guy and let God deal with the curses. If he wants to curse me and I deserve it, fine. If he wants to curse me and I don't, then there's no way his curses are going to overpower God's blessings. I don't need to kill him. 
So David and his men went on their way, but Shimei kept going along the side of the hill opposite of him, yelling curses as he threw stones and dirt at them. He's like that dog that chases you on the bicycle. And the king and all the people were with him and arrived exhausted at their destination, and David refreshed himself. So David is outside the land now, he's on the run, and Absalom's going to take the throne. Verse 15, Now Absalom and all the men of Israel arrived in Jerusalem. Ahathophel was with him. And when David's friend Hushai, the archite, came to Absalom, Hushai said to him, Long live the king, long live the king. Absalom said to Hushai, Do you call this loyalty to your friend? Why didn't you go with your friend? As in David. Hushai replied to Absalom, No, I will be loyal to the one whom Yahweh, these people, and all the men of Israel have chosen. So he plays to his arrogance. The people like you, and if the people like you, God must like you. I'm with you. Moreover, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son, just as I served your father? So I will serve you. And not only that, it's just natural for an advisor to also serve the son after the father is gone. Then Absalom said to Ahathophel, Give us your advice. What should we do? Ahathophel replied to Absalom, Have sex with all your father's concubines, wives, whom he left to care for the palace. All of Israel will hear that you have made yourself repulsive to your father. Then your followers will be motivated to support you. So they pitched a tent of Absalom on the roof, and Absalom had sex with him, his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. Why did that happen? The prophecy. God said, you took the wife of another man, then another man close to you will take your wives. What you did in secret, they will do in public. Now we know the other man is actually his son. Now remember we learned this from Genesis 34 with um, Reuben, that taking your wives of your father before your father has died is a way of taking power from your father. Basically saying, I wish you were dead. Because remember, wives represent treaties. So this would be like going to your father's safe, picking it, hacking it, opening it up, grabbing all the treaties with all the other nations, all of his bonds, all of his CDs, and like putting your signature over it. Finding a way to get rid of his signature and putting your signature over it, now you've seized everything. This is identity theft. That's what it is. And so by seizing the wise and having sex with them, he's taking those treaties, and they now belong to him. And he's doing this in front of everybody. Not only is this fulfilling the prophecy of God, but what's also interesting is it is from that roof that David saw Bathsheba and said, I'm going to take her. And now on that very roof, his son is saying, I'm going to take them. This is all poetic justice. And that is Ahathophel's advice. Good political advice, but horrible godly advice. In those days, Ahathophel's advice was considered as valuable as a prophetic revelation. Both David and Absalom highly regarded the advice of Ahathophel. Some translations will say, not one of his words ever fell to the floor meaning that none of them were ever unfulfilled. None of them didn't happen the way he said. Absalom now has the throne, and he's taken the wives of David, and the people are following him, and David has fled outside the land. We've gone from a king who's kind of corrupt to another king who's really corrupt, but the king who's fled has regained his faith. David has regained his faith. And there was, here's what's so interesting. In some ways, 
This is happening to David because he deserves it to happen to him as a punishment for his sins. But in another way, God is using it to bring David's faith back. Because it doesn't matter whether God is judging you or allowing you to suffer or though you just live in a fallen, sinful world and it has nothing to do with judgment or sin or whatever, God will use everything to accomplish his purposes. And like Joseph said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And not only is God intending this for judgment, but he's also using this to bring David's faith back and to get him to trust back in him again. Because God can kill 50 million birds with one stone. Because that's how he works. Chapter 17, verse 1. Ahathophel said to Absalom, Let me pick out 12,000 men. Then I will go and pursue David this very night. When I catch up with him, he will be exhausted, worn out. I will rout him, and the entire enemy that is with him will flee. I will kill only the king, and will bring back the entire army back to you. In exchange for the life of the man that you are seeking, you will get everyone the entire army will return unharmed. Now that's big talk. Just give me 12,000 men or 12 regiments of men. I'll chase David down. I'll rout him. He'll be exhausted. I'll kill him. But everybody else I'll bring back and they'll be happy to come back with me. Now chances are they might actually be because there is no other king except for the son's king. The king's son. And that's tradition. What he's probably thinking is, remember David has his wives with him. He has his children with him. Some of them, the younger ones. He's on the run. He's going to be exhausted bringing all that stuff with him. David's going to be weak. And in some ways, it's very possible that he could take him. 12,000 soldiers who are refreshed, chasing down David and his family and children and wives with a few other soldiers there's a good chance he will be successful. This is good advice. Strike David now while he's on the run and while he's exhausted. Verse 4, This seemed like a good idea to Absalom to all the leaders of Israel. But Absalom called for Hushai, the archite, and said, Let's hear what he has to say. So Hushai came to Absalom, and Absalom said to him, Here's what Hathafel has advised. Should we follow his advice? If not, what would we you recommend? Hushai replied to Absalom, Ahathophel's vice is sound this time. Hushai went on to say, You know, your father and his men, they are soldiers, and are as dangerous as a bear out in the wild that has been robbed of their cubs. Your father is an experienced soldier, and he will not stay overnight with the army. And at this very moment he is hiding out in one of the caves of some other similar place, and if it should turn out that he attacks our troops first, Whoever hears about it will say Absalom's army has been slaughtered. If that happens, even the bravest soldier, one who is iron-hearted, will virtually melt, it away, melt away. For all Israel knows that your father is a warrior and that those who are with him are brave. My advice, therefore, is this. Let all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number like the sand of the sea be mustered to you and that you lead them personally into the battle and we will come against them. Wherever he happens to be found, he will descend on him like the dew falls on the ground. Neither, neither he nor any of the men who are with him will spread, be spared alive, not one of them. If he regroups in the city, all of Israel will take up the ropes to that city and drag it down to the valley so that not a single pebble will be left there. 
Now, remember, Hushai wants David to get away. Hushai is supporting David. So he has to give advice to, to Absalom that sounds like it's going to help, help Absalom, but in reality, it really helps David. So basically, his advice is, no, 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 no. David is a warrior. He has more experience than you and any of your men. And the warriors that are with him are the warriors that have been with him for a long time. They're a well-oiled machine. Not only that, most of the, where they got most of their training experience was on the run from Saul with all their family and children. If anything, this is David's battleground. He's used to being on the run. He's used to hiding. These are the people he fights with. You don't have a well-oiled machine, a well-oiled team, and you don't have the experience. And at the other sense, you're fighting for something that you feel like you're entitled to. David's lost everything. He'll be like a bear who's cornered in the corner and their cubs are being taken away from her. He's desperate. Now, in a lot of ways, that's really good advice. Yeah, David is way more experienced than him. But remember, David's also much older now. And he's not as well-oiled as he used to be. And yes, at the same time, he is exhausted. And he is running away and he's depressed. And we know he's struggling just to hold his faith on right now. And so in a lot of ways, Ahathophel's advice is better. But here's what's also interesting. Notice that Ahathophel's advice is factual. Give me this, we'll go there, we'll kill David, and I'll bring the army back, and you'll have an army, and all of Israel will love you. But Hoshiah's advice is poetic. We'll come upon them like the dew falls on the ground. They're like a bear who's having their cubs stolen away from them. It's very poetic and it's very flattering. You will go. And all of Israel will hear about you crushing him and killing everybody. Not one person will be spared. Because Hushai may not be giving the best advice to help Absalom, but he knows Absalom really well. And what he likes is stroking his pride, arrogance, power, dominance, strength. And the more poetic it is, the more it puffs him up and makes him feel better. And that's how you get his attention. And that's the advice that he's going to take. Then Absalom and all the men of Israel, verse 14, said the advice of Hushai the archite is, sounds better than the advice of Hathafel. For Yahweh had decided to frustrate the sound advice of Ahathophel so that Yahweh could bring disaster on Absalom. This is key because we learn two things right here in that little statement. One, God answered David's prayer. It's the exact phrase that David prayed. May you frustrate the advice of Ahathophel. And it says God had decided to frustrate the advice of Ahathophel. He answered David's prayer. The second thing that we're told is that no matter how many horrible things are going to happen to David, because God wants him to because of judgment, that in the end, David, God is still on David's side. And this is the first time the narrator tells you that God will bring David through this. And God will honor the Davidic covenant and he will punish David with the rod of men because that's what good fathers do. But he will not reject or abandon David like he did with Saul because he made a promise not to. And that little paragraph kind of wraps everything up. 
the theological point that God is making here. Yes, your Father in heaven will allow consequences to happen to you when you sin. He will not support you in your sin. He will allow consequences to happen. He will allow sometimes the bad things of the world to happen to you. But your God, your Father in heaven, will never, ever, ever abandon you. He will always be with you. And even when he's judging you like a good father and disciplining you, he's still using that not to break you down and destroy you like a dysfunctional father, but to grow your character and train you up like a good father does. And all this is showing is that the judgment of God felt really harsh in chapter 12. And the judgments here are feeling very depressing and very hopeless. Yet what God is reminding you is that he honors promises. He is with you all the time. He will never abandon you. And even when he's judging you, he will use it for your benefit to grow you and make you trust in him. And the first Peter's sense of using trials is testing your faith and growing your character. And just like David, even if you haven't been walking with him for a long time, you haven't really been trusting him, even at any moment in your life, you can turn back to him and begin to trust him. And after years of not talking about Yahweh, years of not trusting him, David says one little prayer and God answers it. God answers it. Don't ever think that the judgment of God means that he's against you. Don't ever think that the suffering of your life means that there's no hope. And don't ever think that no matter how long you've been away from God or not been right, that somehow you've got to crawl through broken glass and beat your back to prove yourself worthy enough to come back in his presence again. A simple prayer and a little time alone thinking, and God's right there with him, protecting him, guiding him, and answering his prayers. Because even though God is a just God who will punish the sins of his children to the hundredth generation, he is a merciful, compassionate, at the drop of a hat, will forgive, and he will reward you and bless you to the umpteen generation, according to Exodus chapter 34. And that's an important thing here, that we see this movement in David's life. And the wisest man in all of David's palace is brought down low because God decided that he was going to be with David. Instead. Verse 15. Then Hushai reported to Zadok and Abiathar and the priests. Here's what Ahathophel has advised Absalom and the leaders of Israel to do. And here's what I have advised. Now send word quickly to David and warn him. Don't spend the night at the fords of the desert tonight. Instead be sure to cross over to or else the king and everyone who is with him may be overwhelmed. Now Jonathan, Ahamaz, were staying in, in Rogel, and a female servant would go and inform them, and they would then go and inform the king David. It was not advisable for them to be seen going to the city, but a young man saw them on an occasion and informed Absalom, so two of them quickly departed and went to the house of a man of Baru, and there at a well in his courtyard, and there they got down in it, and his wife then took the covering and spread it over the top of the well and scattered some grain over it, and no one was aware of what she had done. So basically, they're letting you know that the sons of Zadok are taking the message back to David, but they were spot by one of Absalom's spies. 
So a woman is throwing them into a well and covering it up and spreading grain over it so nobody will think to look there. It'll just look like a threshing floor. Verse 20, when the servants of Absalom approached the woman at her home, they asked, where is Ahimazah, the Jonathan? And the woman replied to them, they crossed over the stream, and Absalom's men searched but did not find them, so they returned to Jerusalem. After the men had left, Ahimazah and Jonathan climbed out of the well, and then they left and informed King David. And they advised David, get up and cross the stream quickly, for Ahathophel has devised a plan to catch you. So David and all the people who were with him got up and crossed the Jordan River. And by dawn, there was not one person left who had not crossed the Jordan. Now, what does that remind you of? A woman hiding a couple spies, misdirecting people? Rahab. That's another story that's letting you know who is God with. God is with David. God is with David. And even though David should technically not be crossing the Jordan and not leaving the land, despite that, God is with them. Because even though David is not doing exactly what he's supposed to, God is still faithful to keep his covenant promises to David. And this reminds you of 1 Timothy, where Timothy says God is faithful to us even when we're not faithful to him. Because that's the character of God. Verse 23, When Ahathaphel realized that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and returned to his house and in his hometown. And after setting his house in order, he hanged himself, so he died and was buried in the grave of his father. Now that's depressing. When he found out his advice had not been taken, he committed suicide. His self-esteem was completely wrapped up in his discernment and his wisdom. And the fact that everybody always, all the time, took his advice. And the one time that somebody doesn't take his advice, he can't handle it. His whole identity has been wrapped up in that. And when he fails, it crushes him. And I think we know people like that. They wrap their entire identity in their ability to make money or success or their ability to be a great actor or an eloquent speaker or whatever. Or their children. And when that fails in some kind of way, it crushes them. Maybe they don't actually commit suicide, but they get suicidal in their emotions and their outlook in life. There's lots of things going on here. Why is God telling you this? One, he's showing you this because in a literary way, this is foreshadowing the end of Absalom. He's going to die being hung from a tree too, just like his advisor. Two, it shows you that God has thoroughly undone the advice of Absalom. He is so against Absalom that Absalom's advice, his greatest advisor, not only has not been taken his advice, but his advice is now completely gone altogether. But the other thing this is showing you is this, that like attracts alike. Ahathophel was another arrogant man who put all of his identity in his appearance or his abilities and how amazing he was. Absalom is another man who's put all of his identity in his beauty, his looks, and his power. And it's really just selfishness. It's just using everybody and everything for their own purposes. And Absalom is attracting those kind of people to him. And when they fail in that kind of a sense, they will collapse and fall. And when Absalom fails to be that in that kind of a sense, he will collapse and fall. 
And what seems like beauty and charisma and wisdom and success and power on the surface is really just an empty, dead tomb of people just trying to make themselves feel better about themselves through the wrong means. And when those outward materialistic surface things don't successfully make them feel good anymore, then they collapse and die and they're not actually worth depending upon. And yes, David may be a corrupt person who's did a lot of sins, not always trusting good God, but in the long run, he is a much deeper person. And yes, we always make the mistake of trusting in things that we shouldn't. We all do that. But ultimately speaking, David's track record is a man who trusts in God. And we see that from the book of Psalms. And that's why God made a covenant with him and not Saul and not Absalom. And that's what God is showing, the difference between the worldly men and the spiritual men. And yes, the spiritual men and women can commit big sins and not trust God and fail big time, and God will let them reap the consequences. But in the end, there's still a greater depth to them. And there's something deeper that they're trusting in and going after than these worldly men and women who put everything in these outward appearances and power and skills and talents. And when those things don't succeed or fulfill them anymore, they can't handle it and they collapse because there is no depth to them. And how many stories do we read and how many movies do we watch and how many times do we turn on the news and see that over and over and over again? And you go into Hollywood and there's lots of miserable celebrities who put everything into that and they're still not happy and they're just miserable. And that's what God is showing you. He is giving you a story of all these worldly people who are using the world to make themselves powerful and it's not, it's, it's not fulfilling them and it's not succeeding. And Ahathophel's downfall is the way of all the world and it is foreshadowing the way of Absalom. 